Let's bring in Francis Beulah, Globe and Mail Urban Issues and political writer, joining us now by phone. Francis, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Hi. So I saw some of the photos and immediately thought, oh, no, that doesn't look great. Uh, but then having gone down, I rode my bike by a few beaches. I know you went to a few places by Science World and that. Did you notice a disconnect in what was being put out there in the photos and what was actually happening? Um, I mean, it certainly uh, did feel like a disconnect in the sense that there were so many photos saying, oh, my God, it's all so crowded. Nobody's doing any social distancing. And it just didn't look like that to me. And I spent about four hours on Saturday driving from beach to beach because I was really determined to go in, but it was low tide, so I was looking for a good beach. Uh, and then I went again to Sunset uh, and, you know, also rode around Science World on Sunday And really, like, the dominant thing that's happening is that there's a lot of spacing. And but and it's not just camera pictures that deceive you. It's actually your own eyes. Like, when I first walked up to Jericho, I was like, oh, my God, this is a, you know, S show. Like, it's wall-to-wall people. But when I walked across the beach to look at where the tide was, um, uh, I realized people were actually quite separated, not just by six feet, like 10 or 12 or, or whatever between groups. But then if there were people who were trying to talk to each other, like you'd see the two sets of friends on towels, you know, six feet apart or whatever. Um, and there was obviously like every so often you'd see some group of seven or eight or, you know, six and you'd think, those people don't really look like they all live in a house together, but who am I to know that? <laughs> so, um, no, I was really more impressed by how much everyone was actually trying to respect the rules. And I didn't see enforcement, but ha- did you see any enforcement or people checking to see and, and making sure people were distancing? I didn't see that. I did see two different sets of police standing right next to each other with masks and in one case posing with a couple of tourists. So (laughs) they clearly weren't doing the enforcing. (laughs) Sorry, VPD, but... What I saw. Uh. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's quite quite all right. Uh, what do you what do you take from that then? Are, are people? I, to me, it seemed strange that. And I guess if you did, like you said, your eyes can deceive you. People were taking photos, but maybe it's that that gotcha. People wanting to put those pictures out there and say this without actually taking the time to do what you did, or taking the time to walk down there and see what's actually happening. Yeah, I mean, I think it is partly people who are really genuinely alarmed. I see a certain faction who've never wanted people at Kitts Beach anyway because they think it's their private beach and, you know, they're annoyed when anyone shows up. Um, You know, there's a tiny bit of that. But, you know, really, I mean, we're all kind of conscious of it. And I have to say, you know, when I go to a grocery store, that's when I tend to get cranky because there's always someone, I'm not going to, say who, but, you know, the kind of people that you imagine don't believe that this is a real thing, you know, um, like standing, blocking the aisle, no mask, touching, you know, everything and all the rest of it. So we all have our little points of irritation. Um, and I, it's a good thing that people want everyone to be safe. But, you know, I think we all get into category blaming at certain points. Like it's, it's the silly, you know, young people. It's the boomers, it's the this, it's the that. And the reality is, I think, you know, the vast majority of people are trying to, you know, do the right thing. And then there's a minority who either think this is all overblown, or I'm not vulnerable, or, you know, I don't really know what's going through their heads. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people would uh, agree with that. Uh, interesting, uh, with the, the people at the beaches and in the parks, too, I, I find that that could also have been a case of we heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry telling us that the Monday after the long weekend, that is when people can start to expand their bubble a little bit and, and with the people they trust, obviously still mm-hmm. distancing from strangers and that, but the, but the people you trust. And I could see the mindset being, well, if I can do that in a week, if mm-hmm. I'm very why careful, not why not do that now? Oh, I think there's a lot of getting together with people, you know, um, outdoors, in backyards, in parks, you know, six feet apart. I, there's a lot of that happening already, that people uh, are doing that with someone outside their bubble, but staying six feet apart. So um, it's just it's a bit more visible when it's out on the beach. You know, when when you're all doing it in your west side backyard, it's not so noticeable. <laughs> True. Do you think there's any chance this is going to lead to reforms in that? Remember, it seems like ages ago when there was the idea of a pilot project for alcohol on beaches. Well, I, I saw... I would say every second group last night was drinking openly, whether it was coolers or beers or wine. Do you think that there's a chance if people can prove that that that's okay, people can drink at the beach and the Vancouver Police Department isn't run off its feet right now when so many people are doing it, might we get to a place where we get treated like adults at the beach and in the parks? I mean, you know, like that's, I think what people are hoping for is a lot of the new rules in place. I mean, I did see one report on Twitter from someone who I trust about, you know, it was getting kind of rowdy late at night on some beach near the West End. and um, But, you know, generally I think it's showing that, like, the reasonable people are going to be reasonable when they drink in public, and you're always going to have the yahoos. Um, so it might prove it. I mean, I think I think that there's going to be a hard time rolling back a lot of the really convenient things that we've seen, like picking up alcohol from, you know, getting um, alcohol delivery from a restaurant or doing your insurance online or, you know, there's just been all these changes that for years it was like, oh, no, we can't do this. And suddenly, oh, we are doing it. And now, actually, it's a really working out okay. There's no problem. <laughs> yeah, uh, interesting. We'll I mean, see. you must have noticed some of that, too. Oh, for sure. And 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 all of that. And, and you're right, with the even with food delivery, how do you roll back? being allowed to get beer and wine delivered with food if if it didn't cause chaos and didn't create any problem whatsoever what would the rationale being in rolling that back exactly you know i it, like it it's hard to to it will now be hard to explain like why can't you allow this i mean some changes that i think will happen that um cities might be more resistant to as businesses are going to want to have the parking in front of their shops because they feel like people are using transit less. And so they want to make sure, you know, they want to social distance by surrounding themselves with their cars. And, uh, you know, so businesses are going to push for those, um, those um, non, you know, rush hour um, parking that hasn't existed now for about six weeks, and I think they're going to push to keep that in so that they people can drive right up to you know the street. Hmm, interesting. All right, we will leave it there, Francis. Thank you so much. Always good to talk with you. Yeah, and good for you bike riding all that distance. <laughs> I did not do that. I was in my car, although I did ride on Sunday, and that's so. good. We had all different ground covered. It's all good. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Francis. 
Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, depending on where you live, many parts of Metro Vancouver, the councils and mayor have decided to give property owners a bit of a break when it comes to property taxes, particularly because of COVID-19 and the fact that many people are having difficulty making ends meet. Well, that is not the case in Vancouver, where the property tax increase is still at 7%, and it doesn't look like things are going to change. Mike Smith talked about this quite a bit on his program earlier today. We wanted to continue the conversation. So joining me on the line now is NPA Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Councillor, thanks so much for being with us again. Hi, Joy. Hi, Joy. Um, has there been a budget review or anything to look at if there is somewhere to cut in the budget to, in light of what's happening with this pandemic? We have tried a number of measures and brought forward a number of different motions. So back in early mid-April when council received a report on sort of the city's financial state um, with COVID, I have asked, and and I did get that motion successfully passed for staff to come back with options for a a balanced budget by the end of May. Um, So that was something. Um, Unfortunately, though, it did include some language around focusing on core services like economic recovery and supporting our small businesses and public safety um, road work, things that the city's supposed to do and start from there and see see where that left us and what else we could do. Um, and that part was struck from the motion. So it's been really challenging with this council to have any kind of productive conversations around decreasing expenses. And that's what we need to do. We can't just turn around the edges. And but but are there any I mean, it's it's hard to believe that a budget that was put together pre-COVID before this pandemic hit, that that budget is still the same budget that needs to be passed now, that there's not anywhere in that budget where some cost savings could be found. It's very hard to believe. And, you know, together with some of my fellow colleagues, like Councillor Dominato, we also brought forward a motion to reduce the increase to the cost of the consumer price index um, that was not supported by the majority of council. Um, we had another um, motion to look at the incremental monies, the $111 million that's going to be coming in from the 7% tax increase and look at what expenses could be reduced and what projects could be deferred. That was not supported. So, yeah, absolutely, we need to trim. It's just not realistic. Um, our businesses are having a really, really tough time. And with triple net leases, we know that uh, they're going to bear the brunt of those um, that incremental cost of property tax and that's one way we could help them right now the other municipalities are stepping up and i really would like to see vancouver do the same so what is the the reason that is given to you or when the other councillors say no we're not going to do this we're not going to look at this what what is the reasoning behind that i think it's denial um about the financial reality that we find ourselves in i think it's a reluctance by councillors that they feel that some of their priorities and projects will be on the chopping block and they won't be cut and they'll move forward. But I'll use the example of, you know, the work we're doing on climate. Um, we can do a lot with smart policy to support our climate goals without the incremental $7 million that's in this year's budget. So, for example, last council meeting, we just passed um, new emissions guidelines for buildings that are three stories and under. That's the majority of construction still in the city. Um, and we're able to pass that. And that's just staff time and policy work. That's not a hard cost to the city to do that. And we can still support Um, greening our city moving forward. So I think it's about working smart and finding ways to work more efficiently. Uh, Is there a fear that this could also backfire a bit in that when those property tax uh, invoices start showing up, that more people will be inclined if they can to defer their taxes and thus then in that scenario, the city is not going to be getting any property taxes from those homes for the foreseeable future? 
Well, the way that the property tax deferment program works is that that is provincial. Um, and so the city is made whole in that sense. So if a resident defers their property taxes, it's the province that holds that that outstanding obligation. Um, and the remittance are, is made to the city. So the city doesn't lose in that case. I think where the city's going to lose is that our, our businesses and residents that just can't pay their lease. Um, and I've got a motion coming to council on, on restaurants and trying to help them with expanded patio space just because they're looking for a way to reopen that they could actually pay the bills. But if that restaurant can't pay their taxes or if that resident can't pay theirs, um, that's where the city will lose. It'll be on default. And do you anticipate the idea of patio spaces? I'm glad you brought that up because we've been talking about that as well. Are there going to be some creative solutions opening up uh, streets, opening up public spaces to this? So what is your take on, on is that going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. I think it will happen. I think the question, the restaurant industry is fully behind it. Um, as I mentioned, if you've got the same cost of overhead, rent, lease, um, and, and all those other costs, um, but you can only have half as many patrons inside for distancing, then it only makes sense to spread people outside. If dining outside is, is safe. It's, there's sunlight and sunshine, make people feel a bit more comfortable going back and helps restaurants with their bottom line. So the community um, is, and the industry is really behind it. Residents are, are really behind it, a lot of positive support, and I believe that staff are too. I think the question is how flexible the city can be that we don't overcomplicate it. So if you're a little cafe and you just want to set up a couple of tables and chairs outside for people to take a coffee and a pastry outside, let's keep that simple. Um, if you're a restaurant where you have more people sitting down and dining, can we have a really simple um, pre-approved design that a restaurant can take over the curb space in front of their establishment um, and people can dine outside and they can very quickly just put up a perimeter um, and some decking and get going. And, and do you anticipate then that that, that could be done? Because gen- under normal circumstances, things like that tend to take a very long time. And I was even looking it up just because um, people, I mean, the amount of people that are drinking on the beaches right now, and there doesn't seem to be any huge problems. But that's something that looking back, we had a pilot project in the works. It was a delayed. I mean, things like this always take a really long time. Yeah, I was on the park board and called for a review of our concession strategy to kind of modernize our food choices there. And one of the things that came out of the survey of about 7,000 residents at the time was overwhelming support for a trial to sort of allow some managed degree of drinking in public spaces. So, I mean, I think whether it's that or extending the patios and use of our public space, I'm really hopeful that we can have a silver lining that's a positive legacy for a healthier city out of this. It's more space, um, more public space allocated to people. Um, and having a positive equity, and that means the city's going to have to be more flexible, more responsive. And we're not—we can't regulate to every possible outcome. We have to do what's going to be quick and fast for the majority, and deal with any issues that come up um, because that's faster and quicker. Um, and, and that's the—that's the—that's uh, what people need right now in order to be able to feel comfortable getting back out in the world and be able to queue up safely or go into stores. And that's what—that's uh, what our small businesses do too. And uh, so that's uh, one avenue of it. And sorry, I've kind of strayed from from talking about the the property tax increase. Is the seven percent then a done deal? Is that it? That's what homeowners, that's what property owners in Vancouver are going to be looking at. Um, it looks like it now. I mean, I'm talking with my fellow MPA counselors around any other final options that we have because we we've, we've tried a number of different tax. Um, council at its last meeting did have to enact the tax. Um, bylaws um, and that that has to move forward by the end of April there's a law that requires that so there's limited ability to change it now but we're just reviewing and confirming all the options that we have I mean ultimately we're going to need to cut but that may not that may be too late now uh, to decrease the tax bills for Vancouver and that makes that just is really heartbreaking all right well we'll leave it there uh, and I'm sure we will talk about this again Councillor Kirby Young thanks again for your time thanks Joe always a pleasure 
Well, we know many restaurant owners in Vancouver and other parts of the province have been working very hard trying to come up with creative ways or any ways really to reopen when they are given the green light from the province. And uh, we know that Dr. Bonnie Henry said the Monday following the long weekend, that is when restaurants could start to reopen. But what will they look like and will they be ready to do so? Well, we thought it would be good to check back in with Miru Dal. One of the uh, co-owners of Vidya's restaurant in Vancouver. Miru, thank you so much uh, for being with us again. Hey, Jill. How are you? Uh, Very well. How about you? Uh, Good. (laughs) Last time we talked to you, you were just, uh, you were adjusting to this idea of takeout and delivery. Uh, I know you Mm -hmm. said at the time that it wasn't something that you would be able to make money off of or break even, but how has it been the last few weeks? You know what? Uh, it started off a bit difficult because I think everybody was still confused, not sure what to do in all aspects of our lives and our work. Um, but I would say the past month we really did pick up and we cut, you know, we got into the groove of it. And um, I've got to say, I am really pleased with how things uh, went. I mean, we didn't make money necessarily. That wasn't our goal. We've kept the business alive. Which was, I guess that's, I mean, it seems so odd that that would be, that's the standard, that's what we're working for. But that is, that is what you were, I I guess, what you you were hoping for. You know what, it kept it, uh, and the other thing was, I wanted to maintain the cuisine itself, right? I didn't want to go fast food Indian suddenly. And so, you know, the 75% wage subsidy really, really helped a lot. So what is it going to look like, do you think, as we get closer to the date when restaurants uh, have come up with solutions and will be able to open the doors again? Will you be able to? Yes, we will. Um, so basically, Mike, our GM from the, on the front end, he is looking into the dining room, all the you know safety regulations that are coming up. Um, we're not quite sure yet if there's going to be a seating capacity per square foot or if there's just going to be a percentage, 50%. Um, with the distancing, and we're looking into small things, like, for example, menus. Are they going to be paper? Are we going to wipe them down? Uh, kitchen, you know, I've got to change the menu in terms of make sure, making sure that we can cook what we can, but within distancing rules and, um, you know, Vidya's serve family style. That was just our way of doing it. It's an Indian restaurant, family style. Everybody's sharing in the middle for the past 25 years. Um, I think that's going to have to change now, again, with, you know, with COVID-19. And so, you know, we're just reformatting everything, keeping the same food, but reformatting. And again, the 75% wage subsidy, it really allows me to make sure that I'm um, working with the staff, taking the time and not panicking about the money right away. Do you anticipate a lot of uh, people have been curious if restaurants are going to go to a full-on reservation system so they don't have people waiting in crowds or they have a better idea how and where they're going to fill their restaurants? Uh, if I'm, if, unless I'm incorrect, Vidges never took reservations, did you? We didn't take reservations uh, in the old location on 11th and Granville. And then the new location on Canby Street, we did start taking reservations in half the dining room about a year, year and a half ago. And so, so basically, we were taking dining room reservations and then for half, and then walk-ins, we had opened up the entire lounge for dining as well. So how do you think that will change? Well, uh, we can't have the crowds. I mean, I can't imagine in the foreseeable near future that we can just have a bunch of crowds, you know, crowds. I don't think people want to be in those crowds. Um, so what we're discussing right now is just going full-on reservations.
Okay. Do you yeah. anticipate your restaurant or, or do you think others were going to see plexiglass in between people or, or what other measures do you think are being considered for the reopening? Yeah, we haven't. Plexiglass, we are thinking about the kitchen side of things, just making sure that, you know, like food, right, is different. Um, we haven't really, you know, ambiance, I can't remember if I mentioned this, we go out um, not only for eating the food, but we go out there because we're the jovial ambiance, right? Unless right. it's a real super high, you know, high five-star dining. But we go out for like, to the pubs, to the you know, breweries, it's for the ambiance. Plexiglass between the tables, unless the government mandates it, which we're willing to do whatever Dr. Bonnie Henry mandates, but if it's not mandated... We would prefer to find other means that our customers do feel that, you know what, we are healthily safe, but we're not feeling lonely and confined while dining at a restaurant. Right. That, and that makes sense completely. What about paying? I know a lot of people throughout this are only really comfortable or have been really moving to the tap of credit cards. Do you yep. think we've seen yep. the end of paying with cash? I, I'm not sure if it's going to be the end. I, I mean, I saw the end of paying with cash even before COVID-19. Um, we've, you know, steadily seen the decline in cash payments. So cash people usually use when it's not that much, mm. right? When it's not that high. So yeah, I'm pretty sure that people are going it, to. It's, it's plastic, right? And it, it must be easier as a restaurant too to do no touch to be able to put the the terminal for people to tap yeah. on it. And, and yeah. I mean, it seems like that's one of the easier things to figure out. The, yeah, the payment's going to be the easier thing. It's just figuring out the seating in the dining room. So we've got a rooftop patio, we've got private dining rooms, we've got a lounge and the restaurant. It's really going to be about what our seating capacity is. And, um, and what the, the seating capacity is going to um, determine how many people we hire um, based on the previous staff. And then it just it determines all of our fixed costs as well, right? Right. Can you? Well, make- it doesn't determine, but it'll it'll you know you got to balance it out with fixed costs. And most importantly, right now we do not wish to offer um, a fine dining, expensive menu with all these magical potions and bells and whistles at a time when everybody is just going to tiptoe back into restaurants. And we don't know what the status of everybody's wallets are right now. Right. Uh, no, exactly. And you're, you're right. People want to go out and experience this, but it's not going to be everybody flooding into restaurants right away. Can you- We just don't know who's going to no. be nervous about spending money right now. Mm-hmm. Do you can you make money then if you can say open up at fifty percent capacity? Um, again, I, I keep talking about the seventy five percent wage subsidy. Um, if that can just carry us through the first couple of months, depending on what happens next, absolutely. All right. And you mentioned, too, people, there are going to be people nervous going out. Every time we talk about restaurants, I think on the program, I get a couple of email from people saying, well, how on earth can they distance in kitchens? How do I know the kitchen is safe? Uh, my guess is, though, restaurants are going to go above and beyond to make sure every safety protocol is in place. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing, the good thing, so what, one thing we did is we also, one thing we had to do during the pandemic, the closing of everything, was we had to consolidate Rangoli Restaurant into Vidge's Restaurant. So we no longer have the two independent running restaurants. Um, so we're going to have the Rangoli menu, but everything is going to happen in one building. Um, but the good thing is uh, we've got kitchen staff that have been with us for over 25 years. So communication is not a problem. Working together is not a problem. So um, I'm, pre- I'm not even pretty. I'm really confident that as far as kitchen is concerned, I'm really confident in terms of cooking and distancing and Gloves and masks and, I mean, plexiglasses, 
you know, that might be something we do put plexiglasses between cooking stations. Hmm. When do you think you'll reopen? If they tell us, you know what, um, as of, let's say, May 20th, you can reopen. Mike and I and Vikram are really trying hard to be able to open on May 20th, but we just can't open until we have exactly what is required. And that's what we're waiting for, the exact regulations and rules and everything. All right. Well, we will be waiting uh, to see what you and many other restaurants do uh, as well. Miro, thank you so much for taking time with us again. Thank you, Jill. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for being with us. So on this Monday afternoon, there has been a lot of talk of getting out, enjoying the sunshine. Many people did that this past weekend. Coming up in this hour of the program, we are going to check in with the Vancouver Park Board because they have decided that they are not going to be reopening some parking lots by some of the beaches because of fear of bigger crowds gathering. One place that has managed to stay open, at least some of these have managed to stay open throughout the pandemic, is golf. Golf courses. Yes, we did see some golf courses shut down, but we did an open line on this just a few weeks ago and people were calling in saying they are open, we are going, they've taken all the measures and precautions necessary to make sure it is safe. And they were very happy to see that golf courses in some scenarios were staying open. Well, my next guest is a freelance writer, also the former editor of Alberta Oil Magazine. Max Fawcett is here to talk a little bit more about golfing. Max, good to have you back on the show. Uh, Good to be here, Jill. Uh, You've written about this. Uh, It seems like a a personal story for you in that uh, you've enjoyed the fact that golf courses uh, have either reopened or stayed opened, and that's something that people have figured out how to do while distancing. Yeah, it's a little tougher where I am here in Calgary just because the weather hasn't been as wonderful as it is for, for you guys out there. It's you know We had snow uh, over the weekend, so <laughs> it's been a little slower rolling out here, but um, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Um, and it's funny, like I've, I've, you know, I've written over the years some what I consider to be pretty controversial columns, and when I indicated that I was going to write in favor of going out and playing golf, I, I've never had a more negative reaction. Uh, you know, I had friends of mine sort of, you know, in my tweets uh, on Facebook saying, oh, God, please don't write about that. You know, you're going to become a pariah. It's, it's this funny issue where it's kind of, uh, it really sort of represents the polarization that we're seeing around a lot of these issues right now. And just the sort of, I think, frustration that people are feeling about being locked up and, and, and having to deal with COVID. So was the idea being, or those who were opposed to it, so were they concerned that, that you were going to come across as kind of an elitist, uh, let let those who can golf, golf, and, and that's that? Yeah, and I, and I you know, I understand where, where they're coming from. The, you know, the game of golf's most, most famous uh, participant right now is not a particularly popular guy in Canada. Uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, is kind of like the avatar for uh, the, the wrong way to respond to the crisis. So I certainly understand why people uh, get annoyed when, when golfers go out there and say they, they, they want to play their favorite sport when a lot of people, you know, can't even get their kids into school. They have to, they can't go to work. They're dealing with all sorts of other sacrifices. But, you know, the thing I would tell them is, is that when you look at how golf is played, it's almost the perfect sport for, for social distancing. You know, we, we should stay distant. There's only four of us at a time at, at most, and, and you can play the game safely. And I think we should be letting people do things that are safe right now that make them happy, even if we may not participate personally support them. And there was a huge push here uh, in BC, and I think a lot of it had to do with the weather and our spring conditions in exactly that. If golf courses could prove that there wouldn't be crowds in the parking lot, there wouldn't be crowds gathering before tee-off, that they could space people and do this, then why not? 
yeah, I think the onus is on the golf courses and the golfers to live up to the the opportunity they've been given here. If, if they do start congregating and, you know, high-fiving or whatever, then that privilege probably should go away. But, you know, we're, we're also constrained right now in what we can do and, and the, the shape that our lives have that I think any opportunity to to release the pressure a little bit in a way that is safe is, is worth doing. And, and, you know, that's true of any number of other things, other sports, whatever. We should be trying to find ways to let people get out there, have some degree of normalcy in their lives because everything else is just so crazy. Well, and and again, you mentioned this, uh, that the weather uh, in Calgary, not quite as nice as it is in BC, but we even saw that last weekend as well. Uh, the tennis courts and the pickleball courts so were reopening with the, the Vancouver Park Board saying, okay, you, we figured out a way, you make sure you're not gathering in groups, you're not touching other people's rackets or equipment, but uh, noticing, at least recognizing how important it is for people to get outside. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I, I yield to those who are, but my sense of the literature is that we're seeing a lot of evidence that, that it's okay to be outside, that it's pretty hard to catch this thing when you're outside unless you're really kind of, you know, right in somebody's face. So I think it's a good thing for, for people to, to find opportunities to, to get some sunshine, to run around, to, you know, get some endorphins, whatever it might be, because, you know, I think I think it the harder we clamp down on people, the harder it's going to be for them to, to comply. And so giving them these little little opportunities to, you know, get some exercise, have some fun, I think will make us more likely to stay stay in formation uh, with the rest of the, the requirements for us. We're more likely to, to respect social distancing, more likely to stay home, to put a mask on when we're at the grocery store. If we can kind of point to those little opportunities for, for having moments of fun, moments of recreation. Why is it, do you think, though, there's such a hate on or such a hostility to golf, whereas I don't see the same with, say, people playing tennis or people playing other sports outside? It's funny, like, I, I totally understand where that, that sentiment comes from, because I felt it myself. I'm sort of a, I guess you could call me a self-loathing golfer in, in that, you know, the culture around golf is not always the greatest. It, it can be an exclusionary sport. It has been a, a and maybe a sport is generous game. Uh, it has been a game that, that, you know, has, has dealt with discrimination, still deals with it in some, some aspects. And, and then there's the Donald Trump factor. So, it, you know, from a PR perspective, it doesn't have a lot going for it right now. And, and I do understand why, you know, if you're, if you're a, a family that's locked down, that's dealing with kids who can't go to school, you're, you can't get, you can't go to work, your personal finances are, are under stress and, and you see people getting really agitated to play golf that might make you upset. I, so I, I do understand that. I, I guess my advice to other golfers would be to kind of, you know, keep your head down a little bit about that stuff and, and just be thankful that we get to do the thing we love. And, and you know, we should be supportive uh, for other people uh, in, in them doing the things that they love right now. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Max, thanks for writing about this. And thanks for joining us today to uh, talk about it a little bit more. Well, thanks for having me on and I uh, appreciate it.